Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of First Money in a podcast for knowledge seekers and risk takers. This week, we talk about a few things. One of them is Harlem Capital, my firm raised $134 million fund too. And we're going to talk about how that is impactful for diverse founders and how 2020 in this decade of the 2020s is going to be one to watch diverse founders. Secondly, we talk about Coinbase and their IPO and how that's going to impact cryptocurrency as a whole. We have some hard touch uh, conversations about our crypto journeys and how Muhan and JL could have been billionaires, but they are not. So they have to do this podcast every week. Lastly, we talk about Biden and his $2 trillion package to upgrade our lives, infrastructure, uh, technology, standard of living, et cetera, et cetera. He is spending a lot of capital here. And we even talk about how do we get better people to come from tech and private business to come into uh, the public service industry, right? And then lastly, at the end, we are going to be talking about our winners losers in content. You don't want to miss this episode because we get really down and deep and share some personal things. Talk to you soon. Now into the episode. Welcome back to the First Money In podcast, the podcast for knowledge seekers and risk takers. Every other week, we come together to explore recent events in the world of startups, finance, politics, and the business world around us. I'm your host, Jonathan Lacoste, aka The Spaceman. And as always, I'm joined by my two fantastic co-hosts, Muhan Jung, aka The Operative, and Brandon Smooth Jazz Bryant. We're coming to you live today on day 4321. If you know what it is, you're in the loop. And with that, Brandon, I'm going to kick it off to you. This past week, we had some pretty exciting news in the world of venture capital, and most importantly, in the world of one of our besties, that being you Mm -hmm. in particular. So, (laughs) Muhan and I have been cheering you on in clubhouse rooms and on Twitter this past week, but would love to have you walk the audience through why this past week was so big for you and Harlem Capital Partners in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for setting that up. And it's been big, I think, over the last two weeks for diverse-led VCs. Uh, there was another another fund uh, by the name of Mac Venture Capital with Marlon Nichols, who had raised $110 million, and they're going to be focused on a lot of uh, diverse-led uh, uh, companies as well. And just this past week, man, we launched our fund two hundred and thirty-four million dollar fund, where we'll be doing forty-five investments into diverse startups. Uh, our fund one was forty million, so we three x that fund. Uh, so we are going to have the same mission of investing in diverse founders, have the same mission of investing in seed rounds, just bigger fund. Uh, we're also uh, had a chance to promote everyone on the team, so I moved from a venture partner to full-time partner. We had our two senior associates move up to principal, and then we hired a new investor um, in Nicole, who was from our internship program. And one other interesting new thing that we're we're adding is Culture Carry, which is such a dope name. I've I've been really falling over myself and our team of like, we coming up with that. (laughs) In Culture Carry, we're going to uh, set aside 1% of all the carry for not only our fund one, but also fund two, 
to give back to our entrepreneurs. Typically in the VC space, there's a, this uh, thing called the power law of returns, where even if you invest in 30 plus companies, only one or two of them really do well, which means only one or two teams out of the 30 plus that you invest in um, are taking home like a hefty liquidity event. And so we want, if one or two people are going to win, we want that, we want to share that with the entire, um, the entire founder cohort. And uh, that's something that's exciting that we're building out right now. And the whole reason that this all started was because uh, five years ago, when uh, Henri, Jared, and myself started to angel invest, we saw that uh, less than 4% of the 100 plus billion that goes to venture capital each year goes to people of color and women combined, despite them being 70 plus percent in the population, growing to be 80 plus percent in the population by 2040. And it's just a clear market inefficiency, right? Like the math doesn't work. 4% delta or the four percent to 80 plus percent that delta in between times 100 billion times 20 years clear market inefficiency so um we've been looking to kind of close that gap and get to some type of parity in the future but um yeah it's just a an amazing week we had a clubhouse where um the managing partners talked about how hard it was to fundraise and, and deals we're excited about in the industry perspective and um Dude, it's just been super solid and just going through some metrics on fund one. So we've done 23 investments so far out of fund one. Uh, about 90% of those investments have a black Latinx or female led uh, founder. 43% of those 23 are just female led only. And uh, we're going to do five more investments out of that fund. Those check sizes are 500,000 to a million. And for fund two, we'll be doing 45 bets. Check sizes are moving up from 750,000 to now close to 1.5 million. And uh, still focus on seed, typically do enterprise software, future of work, future of e-commerce, FinTech space, and wellness technology. And we're also hiring <laughs> on the platform side. So if you are someone who builds communities, understands content, really wants to focus on people of color and women and building that ecosystem, Take a look at Harlem Capital's website. We have that application open until April 29th. Uh, so with that, I, I know there might be a few questions uh, from the squad, um, but hopefully I at least uh, teed up the what's been happening in my life over the last few months uh, in a good place. Well, first of all, I just want to say congrats, obviously, from Muhan and myself. I think we try to make the pod as focused on kind of the world around us as much as possible, but this was just too massive for not only the ecosystem, but I think um, in insanely proud of what you and your partners at uh, Harlem Capital were able to provide. And going through some of the statistics that you mentioned, just equally as important that you succeed, right? I think compared mm -hmm. to other venture firms or other startups, you know, the, the importance of them succeeding is um, maybe more debatable. Um, but I feel like with the mission that you guys are pursuing uh, in, in investing in, what, what is it, a thousand uh, founders yeah. of color? In, yeah, over the a next thousand decade. diverse founders over the next 20 years. 20 um, years. Yeah, yeah. And we hope that by investing in a thousand diverse entrepreneurs over the next 20 years, that helps change the face of a typical entrepreneur in your, in your mind. But also by default of us doing that, we hope to help change the face of what a typical investor looks like. When yep. that, when, you know, when I say investor, when I say entrepreneur, I just hope in the future, we can change the typical person that pops into your mind. Yeah. And and you guys will be successful doing that. And, and the industry collectively needs you to be successful. And so kudos, 
to what you guys are doing for being the trailblazers and um, excited for Mac and some of the other firms that you mentioned that are, are doing it as well. I'd love to maybe just have you share with Muhan and I in the audience uh, the origin story of Harlem Capital Partners, because I think one of the things that sounds very intimidating about venture capital is listeners, listeners of the pod will, will hear about this $134 million round, you know, big amounts of money, some some very impressive LPs and investors that are participating. Um, but with many things, it was humble beginnings. So can you talk a little bit about how you guys got the ball rolling? Yeah, it's super, extremely <laughs> humble beginning. So, I mean, quick background. Uh, so when I was a sophomore in college at Ohio State, I joined this like national diversity program called MLT, Management Leadership for Tomorrow. And this program basically helps um, diverse students meet people who look like them at other universities who are interested in business. So I met Henri and Jared, my business partner through this program. Henri is from Detroit and went to Northwestern. Jared's from Jersey and went to Wharton. And so as sophomores and juniors in college, we became good friends. We interned together in finance. And then we all moved to New York, happened to live together in Harlem, happened to work at the same investment banks. And about fast forward two or three years of doing that, knowing each other personally and professionally, we had this naive idea to invest some of the capital that we made um, as investment bankers into real estate, into small business. And then we stumbled upon early stage startups and we said, hey, we keep seeing, well, we wanna invest in people who look like us, but we keep seeing that no other investor wants to prioritize people of color or women. Let's do some research here. And then that's when we found out about that whole big delta, 4% of the capital, of a hundred plus billion that each year uh, goes to people of color and women, despite them being 70 plus percent of the population. So in our heads, we said, hmm, market inefficiency, big opportunities, dollar size, we can do well and we can do good at the same time, but let's prove out this thesis with our own capital. So we were writing checks um, together, $15,000 checks or $25,000 checks into early stage startups. These are small dollars. But for us, we wanted to build processes because um, coming from investment banking and private equity backgrounds, people build processes and processes run companies. So if we can do well with little, we thought that we could do well with much in the future. And so that led us to invest in six deals. We were doing like investment meetings in our living rooms. We were ordering Popeyes. <laughs> Harlem was a food desert at the time. So we were just ordering whatever we could and uh, like super humble beginnings. And then what happened was, as Henri and Jared, they went off to Harvard Business School, they were recruiting for private equity and venture capital, didn't see any people who looked like them that were in partner positions. So we went back and thought to ourselves, like, maybe we can actually start our own thing. And why don't we try to fundraise and focus on people of color and women uh, from the venture capital side, being a naive again. And um, the story goes, we rose uh like one to $3 million from our friends and family, which is basically all of our bosses on Wall Street. <laughs> and then we had um, a billionaire who was like a, a private equity model invest a million dollars into that business. And then that led to us having TPG anchor our fund. And then that led to us having great people like the State Pension Fund of Michigan and Memorial Sloan Kettering, Weinberg Foundation and other folks come on board where our first fund, we just wanted one anchor investor. We ended up having six institutions, which is rare for um, a first-time fund. And then we turned that fund of $40 million into this new fund of 134 with 
14 plus institutions. We had multiple um, corporate folks jump on board. This is all public with Apple investing, PayPal investing, Foot Locker investing, and Bank of America, where Henri and I worked for two or three years as the investment banker. So very humble beginnings. But what I would say is, if you can find your tribe, lock arms, take risks together, um, especially at an early age, you can move as fast as you want um, and as far as you want. And yeah, we started this December 2015. And now it's, uh, you know, April 2021. And we're managing institutional capital of some of the best institutions and foundations and endowments in the country or in the world, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's a, a pinch me moment for sure. Uh, Brandon, again, I mean, just enormous congratulations. We've uh, really gotten a lot of opportunities to celebrate uh, in person. And so I actually want to put this into context for those who may not come from the fund world, but you guys were oversubscribed for your first fund? Yes. Target was 25 million, rose 40. And you were oversubscribed for this fund? Yep. Target was 100 million, hard cap of 125 but we end up taking home 134. To put this into perspective, for those who are not, uh, again, kind of used to the enormous astronomical numbers that happen in venture capital, I'm looking at this press release that you guys have from Harlem.Capital, and it says December 2nd, 2019 was when you closed the uh, fund one, 40 million. So mm -hmm. now it is less than two years later. It's a year and some change later, and you've tripled the amount of capital you're deploying. Mm -hmm. That is, in startup world, tripling your growth in a little bit over a year. Now, would you like to tell our audience, is that very common for <laughs> <laughs> venture capitalists this young? And, uh, you know, at, at, at times, having, I think, from the stories you've shared, having to, uh, to make the argument and make the case that what you were doing should be normal and it shouldn't be this uh, unorthodox idea. Yeah, I mean, this is... It's a fantastic point. So what I, what I would say for fund one, we started in 2018. It took us 18 months to fundraise for, for fund one. And so for the first 12 months or so of fund one, we, we probably got to 12 million or so. So we were like halfway to our target in the last six months, we raised a rest to get to 40 plus million dollars. Uh, so it, like it's, it's not linear at all. And while we were fundraising for those first 12 months, we had to prove to people that there were, so our, our goal is to invest in 30 entrepreneurs who are diverse over three years. We had to convince people that there's actually 30 people in the United States to invest in, <laughs> all right? So as we were fundraising, we were deploying capital to try to prove like we can find folks in this space. So that's fund one, right? So by the time we closed fund one, we had already been deploying capital for a whole year. <laughs> so that's why it's been so quick. Usually uh, the windows are two to three years for fun Two now. What happened was COVID accelerated a lot of the industries that we were investing in. So e-commerce tech, enterprise technology, wellness, um, fintech as well. Like all these solutions were being fast forward through COVID. And then on top of that, you have uh, what happened with, you know, Black Lives Matter, racial equity, et cetera. So this kind of fast track people wanted to prioritize groups like Harlem Capital. And when we were going out for fund two, we started to at least start these relationships with institutions 
who write five, 10, 50, 100 plus million dollar checks in the future for us. Uh, it usually takes three to six months, if not longer, to start relationships with those folks. And what happened was when we started talking to them, they were jumping at the opportunity. So we turned on our fundraising hats or put on our fundraising hats much faster than usual. And we found out not only institutions like uh, endowments or you know universities, pension funds, et cetera, but even corporate folks wanted to jump on. And so we end up, uh, we thought we might have to take our target <laughs> from 100 million. We thought we might have to move it to 75 because of what happened in COVID and what was going on in Black Lives Matter. And then we had the more confidence as we started to talk to institutions as early as possible. And we ended up closing the fund in six months. We did one close. So we did one close. We hit our target. We went over our cap. We were oversubscribed. And we had people we never had thought, like Apple had never invested in the venture capital fund in the history of the business, right? Bank of America invested in 40 different funds. Uh, PayPal ended up investing in, I think, five or 10 funds. And so it was just the right place, right time for us. But we also know there is a, um, this is a big opportunity. We are the largest diverse led, but also diverse focus fund arguably ever created in venture capital space. <laughs> uh, so we know this is not like a small, small moment for us, but uh, dude, we're pretty excited to have like folks wanting to champion us. And, and the last thing I'll say and something that I want to continue to promote over the next decade is the 2020s is going to be the decade that defines um, diverse ownership, diverse entrepreneurs. And I'm super excited that everyone is prioritizing us right now. And it's just time to take advantage of what's ours. It's our time. We're super excited. And it's time to level up, to execute, to champion each other and open doors for each other and to just really be ready to, to jump on a rocket ship together. Well, this is all so unprecedented. And I think you shared a couple of those historic stats in you don't get Apple to write a check for you off the balance sheet for the first time in co company history, unless you're doing something not only remarkable, but in incredibly special with special people involved. So um, obviously, congrats on the amazing progress in closing the fund. However, as you know, and your partners know, now the real work mm -hmm. begins. And it's <laughs> it's back to like the hardest things. job is deploying capital. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. The arguably with a lot of these, it is insanely difficult to raise the money. But as anyone in venture knows, it is potentially even harder to uh, execute uh, the venture strategy and make sure that you're finding day in and day out great founders, that those founders are building incredible companies uh, of substance. And especially as more capital in general pours into the VC community, it's increasingly competitive too. So I'm glad you guys mm -hmm. are going to be able to write larger checks earlier on, really lead deals and lean in there. I think it'll be something fun to watch. Awesome. Gentlemen, uh, shall I take us away to our next topic? Yeah. Yes, All right. Sir. The only um, thing the only thing hotter than Harlem Capital Partners right now is our next topic. <laughs> the Let's only go. thing hotter. Oh man. Big, big, big boots to fill. Uh Coinbase <laughs> is going public on April 14th, everybody. And they are going public at an estimated valuation of a hundred billion dollars. So to kick us off a little bit, again, just a little bit of context, Coinbase was founded in 2012. And at the time, Bitcoin's valuation was less than a billion dollars. That was nine wow. years ago. I know. That's big. You look at you look at the chart. It's not even velocity. That's called velocity. <laughs> <laughs> and you're watching it. And so nine years later, 
$100 billion in valuation for Coinbase, $1 trillion for Bitcoin as an asset. So it's been it's been a hell of a decade. And um, so here, uh, your co-host and I thought that it would be fun to dig into the personal side of things, kind of ask every, everyone about their crypto journeys in relation to Coinbase and Bitcoin and just how history moved alongside of each of our personal journeys. Um, I've covered my journey fairly informally, but uh, I'm happy to give it a run through again. So mm-hmm. the first time I heard about crypto, uh, Bitcoin specifically, was 2013. Many of my computer science friends were talking about it as kind of a gimmicky thing. So didn't really think about it too much. In 2017 and 2018 is when we had some like crypto heads really ask the campaign to take campaign contributions in crypto, which was a horrible, horrible regulatory pain in the ass, but you know, we made it to the other side. In 2019, uh, kind of on the tails of that, that was also the collapse. Uh, there, was a, there was a Bitcoin bubble at that time and then it collapsed again. I had a friend push me to take a closer look at crypto. And ultimately at that point, I decided, yeah, this thing's not gonna die. I don't know if the future is Libra. I don't know if the future is, you know, whatever these amalgamations are, but the blockchain technology clearly is a real thing. People who are very passionate and competent are clearly going to continue to execute on it. So I'm going to take a position. And then by end of 2020, I think we all have seen this explosion. Um, and finally, Bitcoin kind of, again, coming to this $1 trillion asset, I think having grown over five times in the last 12 months. So mm-hmm. that for me is my crypto journey. And I will kick it off first to Jonathan. Uh, to say, what was it like for you to get brought into this weird, wonky world? I mean, VC is one thing. Crypto, I think, is like even more on the strange scale. <laughs> if you guys want to talk about pain, you should uh, you should think through. Oh, God. I went to Coinbase this morning, and I took a look at when I opened my account on Coinbase. And January 18th, 2014 is when I opened my Coinbase account shortly after they launched and the average price of Bitcoin back then was $750. And, um, yes, I bought some then and I didn't buy enough. And a couple of years later in the bull market run of 2017, I sold it. And I thought that was an amazing return, which in, which in perspective it was for context, if, if for folks that might not remember. So I started my account in 2014, January from October, 2017, the price of Bitcoin was $4,000. 90 days later, it was 5x higher at $20,000. So a 400% return in a matter of 90 days, just pure bull, like unreal growth. Um, I remember my roommate and I at the time were sitting at the kitchen table, literally buying and selling crypto day trading style on nights and weekends. (laughs) And retrospectively, you know, we thought we were geniuses, but if anyone had just bought and held, they probably would have made more money. But we were literally buying, waiting a few minutes, like making a sandwich, going for a walk, coming back. 15 minutes later, the price was up 20% and we would sell. It was just, I remember the euphoria because it was just silly. It just was not based in logic. And it was it was funny money, as they say at that point. Um, of course, crypto crashed pretty hard in January of 2018, right after that uh, spike from 4,000 to 20,000. And I was still holding on the way down and, and I sold most of it at probably 15 or 16,000, but I still held on to about half a Bitcoin or something. So, you know, I, I remember losing a little bit because I had bought at, you know, 17 or 18 and I sold it at 15, 16. So I lost a little bit there, but overall it was very profitable 
in that bull market run. And I had a little crypto sitting around from that time. And credit to a friend, I, I won't publicly call him out, but I'll text him after the show and tell him I gave him a, <laughs> a shout out secretly on the pod. He and I were catching up this past summer in July. And he's more in this space than I am. And he said, I really think that corporate America and Wall Street and institutions are about to start putting Bitcoin on their balance sheets in a really significant way. And I thought that was interesting because I hadn't really paid attention to Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in about a year and a half, maybe two years, right? It was, it was I viewed it as something that was fun, interesting. Um, I think I still have some sitting around, but hadn't been paying attention to it. And once he mentioned that, it got me thinking. I started doing more research again. I didn't immediately buy. I did about two months worth of research. So maybe I should have pulled the trigger faster. But I just really wanted to understand the space because last time there was so much volatility. And so in August and September of last year, probably September timeframe, 2020, I made a serious investment in cryptocurrency, primarily Bitcoin, 80% Bitcoin, 20% Ethereum. And I haven't sold since then. And so obviously it's been a really nice ride since then. I learned from my prior bull runs to just buy and hold as opposed to trading in and out of positions. The only major uh, position or allocation change I've made, and I think I told both of you guys this, is about two or three months into the bull run, once Bitcoin had appreciated in value quite rapidly and Ethereum was lagging, I transferred a good amount of my Bitcoin into Ethereum. So it's closer to 50-50 now in terms of my holdings. And as of now, recording with the pod, Ethereum just hit an all-time high last night and is currently trading above $2,100. So very bullish on both coins, but I felt like the upside was even bigger on Ethereum. So as of today, I, I, I have a little bit more 51% in Ethereum, 49% Bitcoin. But moral of the story, I should have dumped my entire life savings in 2014 <laughs> into this. I should have slept on the road for years. I should have eaten ramen. And maybe we, we would have uh, had nicer mics on pod one if I had done that instead of uh, <laughs> instead of waiting till pod two. Yeah, man. And I'll, I'll jump in here bringing up the rear. I, I feel like we all probably have really similar stories, man. So like JL, I recently had started to make a, a big position. I think I'm more that um, three to six months ago, but talking about my not necessarily horror stories, but. Basically, I think it was in that 2017 run, I was really close with folks that we kind of, we actually met through like Partha and um, I'm not sure if you ever met Mitch Perguson from, he's from uh, Charlotte, but Partha, Mitch and all these guys from Forbes 30 and the 30 in Philadelphia, was that Philadelphia? No, I think it was Boston. Um, they all got me into crypto and I ended up never buying though. And this is literally when Bitcoin is at like the 4,000 or what have you. It goes all the way up to 18 and then crashes. I still am afraid to pull the trigger this entire time. And, and I just like open up account and never went back. That's basically what happened. And then now I'm in the venture space a little bit more deeply, 2019, 2020. And I'm just thinking like, you know what? I really have to pay a lot more attention to Bitcoin. And I started making investments on Coinbase. I'm on Voyager now as well. Shout out to Muhan. And then BlockFi has just been crushing it. I know JL loves, loves BlockFi. Friends of the pod. So. <laughs> Friends of the pod. Um, so from my side, man, I'm fairly new. I'm doing daily buys. I'm literally doing like 25 to 
50 bucks of Bitcoin and Ethereum every single day, just catching all the dips. Got some Cardano in my back pocket as well, uh, just in case that goes off. Also started a, a position in, in um, Polkadot. I'm not sure. We, we never talked about that on the pod, but Swaps, started maybe. a small position. Yeah, started a small position there. And to JL's point, like I do think Bitcoin has appreciated so much and it's obviously just a store of value and there's no type of utility for it, at least right now. But Ethereum is lagging so much right now. And there's so many opportunities that are being built on top of it, whether you think about uh, NFTs or, or DeFi, social tokens that are going to be coming up in the future. So I think there's there's an exponential growth uh, for Ethereum in the future. And many folks think it for sure will be above 2,500 by end of the year, but folks are seeing that there's an opportunity for it to go to potentially 10,000 in the kind of like foreseeable future. So I think there's a Brandon, lot more Brandon, I would, I would make a, uh, I would make a part two recommendation if, we're, if we're doing pod, pod, pod predictions, unofficial mm, pod predictions. So if you remember a few episodes back, we had Bitcoin at what was it? A hundred thousand dollars. I predicted yes. within this bull cycle. Mm-hmm. We're we're gonna see Ethereum go to five thousand in this bull cycle. So okay. currently trading at twenty one hundred, it'll two and a half x, and Bitcoin will go up, not even double at this point to a hundred k, but still massive appreciation. Yeah, yeah, so I you like heard it that, here man. first. Yeah, you definitely heard it here first. But I mean, I think the takeaway from all of us is that we were trigger shy at, at the beginning, mm-hmm. but now uh, we're buying and holding and, and being super excited about not only the future of just holding the opportunities but what's kind of being built in, built on top a lot of people are calling it web 3 where it's like the internet is actually being recreated in front of our eyes where whether it's trading cards or it's art or it's financial tools or etc cetera, etc cetera, it's all being built on top of the blockchain and this is an opportunity of a lifetime to get in at the ground level of I guess, again, like an industrial revolution where it's really democratizing opportunity for anyone who wants to kind of get their hands dirty, partner with other folks, share information, read, uh, can really participate in an upside here. Well, maybe let's transition to, obviously, we talked about our three crypto journeys and, and kind of the different moments in time when we had this realization and were exposed to it. But for all intents and purposes, crypto is still a fairly niche markets in the grand scheme in terms of total exposure for the U.S. population or certainly the global population. Muhan, what are your thoughts on Coinbase going public on, uh, what is it, April 14th coming up here? Um, Mm -hmm. Because that'll be just a defining moment, maybe more from a um, positioning standpoint, but that'll certainly be a defining moment in the history of cryptocurrency. You know, the the largest exchange where, where people buy and sell cryptocurrency goes public. What are your thoughts on it? Are you bullish on the stock? Um, what do you think uh, are the the downstream impacts of Coinbase going public? It's it's such an interesting question, Jonathan. One of the things that I talk about with my readers, with my subscribers, is that every all, all three of us, and by proxy, all the people we maintain a quality relationship with, we all live in the future. With out any exception, full stop, we live in the future. And what that means is for sure, like we're talking about cryptocurrency, we're talking about NFTs. I just learned about NFTs, what, like a few weeks ago, right? It, it, it just, it just the, the, the pace of technological innovation that we live in is so rapid and so fast that if someone is not 
actively. I mean, we have the podcast as an excuse to learn about new things and talk with each other. My job is to get paid to learn, right? I get paid to make good judgment about investment decisions and then share that with my community. And so for someone who does not invest that amount of time, right, on a VC side, on a space VC side, on an individual creator side, I mean, we are just in completely different stratospheres of capacity and ability to learn. So for Coinbase to make it that easy, right? Hey, we're a public company we're worth $100 billion. That is going to create the next level of adoption without exception. Now, I will say this, is it going to be kind of like in my previous analysis of, is it going to be Bitcoin? Is it going to be Ethereum? All these various things. There's the technology and then there's the individual manifestation of that technology in the case. So cryptocurrency and crypto investing is definitely going to keep going. Is Coinbase going to be able to keep holding out as BlockFi keeps growing and doing more successful and they give you the opportunity to stake, right? Huh. Are people going to understand staking as much or are they going to go and start investing in Voyager because Voyager is like Robinhood for Coinbase, right? Coinbase isn't going to go anywhere. They've they established the brand. They're going to kill it. That is not a question. Um, but to say what it what what to me is more fascinating is to say, wow, what happens when this is this is the first domino of crypto going mainstream, I think is really the, the macro question you're asking me. And again, just to always put it back into numbers, gold right now still has a market cap of eight trillion. Bitcoin's at one trillion, right? And uh, I think the American economy is about 14 trillion. So uh, always to put those numbers into perspective, right? These are enormous gastronomical <laughs> numbers, but yeah. Brandon? Yeah, I mean, I was doing a deep dive and just thinking philosophically of like what this means to the ecosystem. It's pretty big, right? Robinhood, imagine what Robinhood meant to, or what it does mean to your next generation of retail investors, right? Uh, I think the Vlad, the CEO of Robinhood was on CNBC a few months ago or a few weeks back. And he mentioned that 50% of new brokerage accounts are created on Robinhood, <laughs> right? Uh, and that's more than all of the other incumbent and legacy platforms combined. And so I think this, what Coinbase is doing is becoming the Robinhood, but it's different. Obviously they're charging absorbent fees, <laughs> right? But I think to the point here is like, this is going to open up the floodgates for adoption and people are going to double down. And when I say double down, I think about Tesla, like people are going to buy Teslas and invest in Tesla's stock, which I did personally, people are going to buy Coinbase and use Coinbase to invest. So I think there's going to be a really interesting kind of um, double whammy around velocity here. And then I think it opens up the floodgates for other crypto platforms like Kraken and other folks who are going to be coming down the line to be able to be um, kind of well-respected by the entire kind of crypto community. Uh, the only other side note that I would bring up here, Coinbase has been in the news for like company culture. They have been in the news for customer service issues. The company culture is more of like them not having any political views at all internally. And there has been talks around people of color who worked at the firm not having <laughs> not having a bright day working there and then the customer service side, which I think this one is just crypto in general, people having stuff lost, um, stolen, locked out of accounts. That's just, that's just the industry. That's like um, a <laughs> price to admission, but net net to JL's question uh, with all the hair on the deal, I'm still a buyer. I'm still a buyer. The publicity alone 
of this direct listing is going to have folks doubling down, not only buying the stock, but also investing through the stock, which I think net net really push crypto in the community much forward. Oh, I'm so excited because the three of us almost always agree on everything and we're always so <laughs> polite about it. But I disagree with you, Brandon. What? And I'm going to let's gonna go. Out, I'm going to lay out why, despite my bullishness for the cryptocurrency market and for Coinbase as a, uh, you know, representative of the crypto community, why I am not a buyer today. And I think some of it is very short term. And so some of this is very tactical and in the weeds. But as as you were just talking for the past two minutes, I think I have a hot take that I want to try out on the pod. And I, I don't mm -hmm. know it's fully fleshed out, but I think long term, we may look back and see Coinbase closer to a MySpace or a Netscape and not a wow. Google Chrome or a Facebook. And let me and let me talk through why uh, short term. So Coinbase is going public at a hundred billion dollar valuation. I think there's a lot of value in the Coinbase brands today and being the first mover into the space. I think we all agree with that. Mm -hmm. But if you start doing a bottoms up analysis of the stock in the company, they did 1.1 billion in revenue. So, okay, True. that's a 90x multiple. You know, they certainly probably deserve it for being a first mover in the space, but that is quite a premium when companies normally trade closer to 30x. They also, as you mentioned, Brandon, make the vast majority of their revenue from transaction fees, very expensive transaction fees, mm -hmm. <clears throat> specifically around two coins in particular, Bitcoin and Ethereum. That's like, I don't know the percentage, but that is an overwhelming amount of their revenue. And as you mentioned, BlockFi, Voyager, um, uh, what was the other one that we mentioned? Uh, Bittrex is certainly one. Um, Robinhood, you can buy crypto on. Mm -hmm. As the number of on-ramps increase to access cryptocurrency, I do think the competitive moat that Coinbase has built up becomes less of a moat and more of a, fir of a first mover advantage. And now they're going to become a financial services company, right? They're introducing a credit card, bank accounts. They're going to go horizontal and try and own because they have 40 million plus accounts, which is very impressive and is an interesting head start. But we're already well into the crypto bull market right now. I mean, Bitcoin's at $60,000, Ethereum's at 2100 So even if those price predictions we gave a few minutes ago come true, I just see a lot of frothiness right now in Coinbase. And I could, it is more likely to me that Coinbase crashes to a $50, $50 billion valuation or $40 billion valuation through some type of crypto correction versus them appreciating to two or 300 billion short term. Because again, I think we're already closer to the top in terms of that frothiness. The one last thing I'll say, and this is unfair to Coinbase, but this is just the reality of, of representing a movement, whether it's an economic movement, political movement, social movement. Coinbase will be one of the first companies, I think, that Wall Street traders that have a negative view of cryptocurrency can hedge against. And we've seen what happens when stocks are shorted and um, because Coinbase is doing a direct listing, no one on Wall Street was able to get a piece of the action before they're going public. They didn't raise any money as a part of this. So I don't know, to be honest, Brandon, I don't know if Wall Street's going to love that. And on the first day, the price is going to shoot up and get really expensive as all the hedge funds are trying to buy Coinbase. Or if Wall Street is going to think, hey, this mm. stock's already overvalued. Let's short the crap out of it early on and get a pre-IPO price three days later because we've, <laughs> we've, we've cut the price 40%. So anyways, I know there was a lot there. I'm very bullish on, again, what Coinbase has built long-term long for the crypto ecosystem. 
But I just, I've got to think that as on-ramps to cryptocurrency become easier, as we're all buying crypto in other platforms, you know, no offense, I'm not going to use Coinbase as much going forward. I'm going to go to the platform that offers me the cheapest transaction cost. I'm going to put my crypto in BlockFi. I'm going to let it sit there. And I'm going to go to the platform that I can sell it for the best price. Um, and I'll be interested to see how Coinbase tries to build around that uh, potential uh, consumer behavior in the future. You, you killed it, Jay. I love it. I think net net, we're both right. <laughs> Agreed with net the two net, smart we're, guys. See, we're, we're too I, nice. We're too nice. <laughs> I think we're, I think we're actually both right. I think there's going to be people on both sides. And I think that's the, um, that's the joy and the pain of crypto in general, right? Like, Jamie Dimon, just like whatever, two years ago said that crypto is a scam, but now JPM is really diving into the crypto space. <laughs> so uh, folks have that Mark Andreessen focus of, I want to be, I'd rather be right than consistent. But to end here, because I know we got to jump to another topic, going around the horn, which IPO is going to do better, Robinhood or Coinbase? I'll go first, Coinbase. Wow, man stands up. Robinhood. I'm going to go Robinhood. Wow. Okay. You know what? Fine. We're going to, we, it's in stone. Four, three, two, one. We'll look back on this in whatever, three to six months. Maybe we'll just look back every quarter and see who's winning every quarter. No, no. From now on, every, every pod episode, part of our regularly scheduled programming will be a stock update on. Price appreciation <laughs> since IPO on Robinhood versus Coinbase. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, well, cool. I mean, it's is we really can't have a pile without talking about crypto in some form or fashion. But uh, great to have that in uh, JL. I think you're going to be kicking it off with uh, the next uh, topic around the infrastructure bill that Biden is is giving out that cash right now. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Speaking of appreciation and keeping track of things, you know. So Biden has come out with this $2 trillion infrastructure plan. And I know just the other pod, we talked about the stimulus plan, the STEMI, as Brandon calls it. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think when we planned the podcast, we thought we would be talking about, you know, every legislative bill that's going through Congress. And, and I just certainly don't think that that's the intention. But I don't want to lose sight of how historic in nature these proposals and bills are. So do you guys remember back in uh, when Obama took office, the auto bailout? Very controversial at the time. The automotive industry was on the brink of failure. A couple of companies declaring bankruptcy and the government swooped in. Do you know what the size of that bill was? I don't recall. In the billions though, right? Maybe not the trillions. Correct. It was in the billions, but it was only 80 billion. 80 only. billion, which is a significant amount of money. So for perspective, this infrastructure plan is 25 times larger than the auto bailout. And so I just think sometimes it's easy for me to gloss over it. Oh, it's just another legislative bill. It's infrastructure or whatever. But we are spending massive amounts of money for transformative products that will change the, the future of America. So what I want to do, because there's a lot in here, I'm going to try and go through this in about two minutes. What's in the bill? What are some highlights? And how does Biden think he's going to pay for it? I'll lay out the facts. And then what I'd love from you guys is a hot reaction on what do you like? What do you don't like? What's missing? And how does this transform the future of America? And maybe even politically, you know, I feel like Biden's being a little sneaky about this in terms of his positioning. So I'd love your thoughts on it as well. 
So Sleepy Joe. Sleepy Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, what is in the plan? So $2 trillion is the top number. You've got four main categories to think about. Category one, helping us get places. That's transport uh, transportation infrastructure. Roads, bridges, uh, Amtrak, airports, 500,000 EV charging stations, right? So that total, helping us get places, transportation, 621 billion, okay? So just shy of a third of the bill. Second category, quality of life at home. That's 650 billion. So again, about a third, slightly less than. They're gonna build and retrofit 2.5 million homes and commercial properties. They're gonna expand high-speed broadband. They're gonna build and upgrade public schools. They're gonna completely redo water infrastructure and they're gonna upgrade the electrical grid, okay? Each of those items I mentioned, by the way, is a casual 100 billion, more than the auto bailout on its own, right? Third category, caregivers for the elderly and people with disabilities. About $400 billion is going into um, America's healthcare infrastructure. And lastly, strategic manufacturing, supply chains, and R&D is about $300 billion. So this is around improving the domestic capabilities of our clean energy manufacturing. Uh, there's a lot of workforce training and development National Science Foundation for New Technologies getting $50 billion. And maybe the most important part of this last category is there is a ton of funding for semiconductor domestic production. As we get into a semiconductor global shortage, semiconductors, you need them to run all clean energy, very important. So that's the $2 trillion plan. How, how is Biden going to pay for it? How are the Democrats proposing this will be paid for? Well, quite simply, they're proposing that the corporate tax rate goes from 21% up to 28%. For context, under Trump and prior administrations, it was as high as 35. So this, this is a little bit of a middle ground. And the last thing I'll say is, as we know, and as we hear politicians talk a lot about, a lot of corporations aren't paying 21%. They're able to, through tax loopholes and through you know financial maneuvering, through international um, uh, tax havens, they're able to avoid that. What the Biden plan intends to do is whatever revenue you report to Wall Street as part of your earnings, you can no longer say that you are reporting different revenue to the IRS and take advantage of these loopholes. So it kind of is going to put in a floor. I think I saw the number 15% uh, of, of your revenue will be taxed in the U.S., which I think will have major implications for companies that um, have been using those loopholes. So anyways, that is what's in the plan. Those are some of the main categories, and that's how Biden is thinking about play, uh, paying for it. Love it. Yeah, there's so much going on there. <laughs> spin, spin, spin. Uh, uh, Muhan, did you want to take the first one? Sure, no, absolutely. Uh, I did, you know, th thankfully, Jonathan, you sent over the the uh, the document for Brandon and I to kind of keep track as you were narrating through it. Uh, on there's the going to be a quiz in a minute, so I hope uh, you paid attention. I knew there was four categories. Home care was one of them, and then <laughs> semiconductors. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was awesome, especially putting it into perspective. One thing, actually, I remember that your, the article you sent over as well had said was that before Trump, I mean, the corporate tax rate was above 30%, right? So it's going from 21 to 28, and then it was as high as this article says as 35% before. Um, generally speaking, I'll say this. Again, in a, another week of what feels like consistent wins, it feels like Biden is just cruising. He is just zoom, you know, cruising all the way to the future. Um, he knows that he uh, has a strong hand to play. And I 
think that he's doing the right thing. You don't very few times in history do you get something that seems like a World War II, like an FDR being able to just galvanize all the spending into the right way, right? So you gotta you gotta you gotta uh, walk big with your big stick. <laughs> then you it's time to <laughs> time to hit some social problems with that with that big stick. Uh, one of the things that's that immediately kind of hot take comes from me. I have been following David Sachs. I hope I'm not like throwing down a gauntlet. I've been following David Sachs from the All In podcast uh, mm-hmm. as I've listened more to the show. And the Rain Man himself. The Rain Man himself, not Ki- not Queen of Quinoa. I still need to get that. That one. Okay, that's the other dude. Uh, <laughs> and I, from what I can garner, I really respect his social views. I think there's um, a, a society needs free speech and intellectual discussion and all those things. Those are good. But sometimes when I talk to business leaders and uh, conservatives and they're like oh the businesses are gonna flee america i'm like really no let's take a look at history here guys right like who invented the internet mm-hmm. <laughs> like who created all of these environments and ecosystems right obama's very famous for saying you didn't build that you didn't build the roads you didn't build the internet you didn't build all the public education that made it so you had some of the most competitive right workforce in the nation in the in the world to compete with and so I'm I'm kind of preempting this. One of the things that you said about 21 to 28, to be honest, I think it go higher. I think it's absolutely in the right wow. direction. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna complain about this because the bigger corporations benefit from more of the government services than younger than smaller sorry than smaller organizations. That's just facts. It's just facts. And really, like, where are they gonna run to? We have the largest, most dynamic economy in the world they're going to miss out on this on this base okay then we'll tax them as an overseas corporation like it's just it's just such an intellectually lazy argument that makes me really frustrated and, and to be honest i don't I, I the amount of the amount of generosity i'm willing to give to say oh these people are ignorant like they genuinely believe that you know we are so far on the laffer curve that if we reduce the taxation rate that we will actually increase the revenue base right there there are all these intellectual arguments that i've heard that at this point feel completely useless and a waste of time. Like if you are actually a sincere participant in how we make the society work well for everyone instead of just being a selfish little cog in your piece of the economy. <laughs> I know, I know, sorry. Move that, on with the hot takes here. I, it. It's, 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 that, it's that is hot. the biggest, that is the very, well, listen guys, like sometimes you just got to set this thing on fire because <laughs> I've, I've had so many wasted time uh, so so much waste of time with individuals who pretend like those arguments. Like I still have people who occasionally make um, trickle down economic arguments. I'm like, are you kidding oh, me, Lord. Lord? Right? It's like 2021, guys. Come on, move on. <laughs> and, There's um, one thing that rich people don't do: they don't trickle down no economics. <laughs> how do you think they got rich? Right? Oh, because they were so bad at you know holding the assets. They trickling their- down nothing. <laughs> Uh, so for hilarious. listeners of the pod, for listeners of the pod, one thing I want to clarify what Muhan said, so that they don't think that this pod has turned to uh, a, 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 an XX version. Um, Theodore Roosevelt said, "Speak softly and carry a big stick." So yes, yes. I think that is the the diplomacy that you were you were referencing yes. earlier. Don't want don't want people getting the wrong idea. Muhan is you. a history buff, so <laughs> sometimes he'll, he'll, he can talk circles around you. Um, I, I'll, I'll jump in a little bit here too. I think few thoughts. This is a massive bill. Like Biden is killing it right now. <laughs> like only like a one-term president who don't gives a who don't give a flying anything yes. Yes. who is democratic could ever do this cuz you no one's going to get reelected pushing all these things <laughs> forward. 
<laughs> and puts in so much spending, right? And he's going out swinging for defenses. I think the two things I really like here, and it goes to Muhan's point earlier of him talking about the three of us are living in the future, but not everyone in the country is living in the future, right? So when you think about that transportation bill or the transportation budget of 28% of the 621 billion, 500,000 electric vehicle stations for buses, for government vehicles, for public use is going to really take us into the future. Amtrak backlog, like all these different things, like being able to commute and travel and have accessibility to things in cities that aren't New York is going to be super valuable for the entire ecosystem. And it's gonna help raise the ties of all the people who are in the middle of America. So I'm really pumped about that. And obviously we need to move forward from fossil fuels. The second part of quality of life, I think is, this is really interesting, right? Like you got water infrastructure, you got electric grid, high-speed internet, I think, high-speed internet and like upgrading public schools and, and, and things of that nature, education, this is what's creating the wealth gap. This is what's creating the education gap. And if you can actually invest in that infrastructure, you can actually help uh, communities bootstrap themselves in the future because they'll actually start at the same the same starting line. And one other hot take that I wish was in there to JL's question, um, and I know it's, it's it's there's a lot of talk about it right now. Is student loans, bro? Student loans is Amen. a really big issue. I myself have refined my student loans. I went from having seven plus percent average. And I got lucky because I had some opportunities and uh, now I'm at two and a half percent. So obviously I'm paying these over time. I don't want to pay it once because I can probably make more than 2% with this money in the market, but I'm paying monthly. The $50,000 would do amazing things for me as someone who's well-to-do, who's managing capital, who's got things going on. When I think about the person who is not potentially well-to-do, the person who is underserved in a community that doesn't have high broadband, that doesn't have public... <laughs> Uh, transportation that doesn't have all these things, that $50,000, it could cripple their family for generations. Financially, on top of that, mentally and philosophically, right? So there's a huge opportunity here where I think like, hey, like if you're throwing trillions of dollars towards the, the investment of our of our underserved communities, and then also of the infrastructure for these communities to, to lift, the, lift themselves up, you got to focus on that education point where like you can literally with the swift of a pen free people you can literally free, like debt is a is a construct in itself and if you could free millions of americans um and they can use that money and even that like now empowerment to go forward and take risk it's crazy because I, I i had a tweet that went viral where it said generational generational wealth starts with the first risk take so you're gonna open up so many opportunities for first risk takers um, in places that they can never take risk in. So I'm, I'm a big proponent, even though maybe I have a private loan now and I can't get the $50,000, it doesn't matter. If someone else can get it who actually needs it, fantastic. I think overall, this is actually an incredibly savvy political move by Biden. Um, and I and I would, I would say that it potentially is very effective in the upcoming elections like the senate election 2022 the house election and then even presidential 2024 even if he doesn't run because what biden is effectively threading the needle on 
is I imagine his team has done this. They have ranked the most bipartisan, broadly supported initiatives and taken all of their promises to the Democratic caucus and stuffed it in the positioning of those very (laughs) bipartisan, broad initiatives. If you think about the stimulus itself, I know we don't have the list in front of us of all the things that were included in the stimulus package, but that was a very large bill that was not 100% Uh, focused on stimulus checks to individuals. There were a lot of other pork barrel and, you know, well-meaning additions to that bill that Biden was able to pass with broad bipartisan support. I think 70% of the American people supported it, even though it it was a uh, very slim margin in Congress. Similarly, if you think about this infrastructure bill, what is it really? This bill is the Green New Deal disguised as an infrastructure bill, and they will never admit that they will never call it that maybe we shouldn't even be calling it that but that is essentially what this is it's an investment in our future both from a clean energy standpoint and from to brandon's point i think it is a uh long overdue investment in the infrastructure of those that are most in need in our society whether those are rural communities or whether those are low-income communities and uh certainly equalizing a lot of um you know the basic needs and necessities that come with it That's all I can do right now, man. Like, <laughs> I'm getting a clap. Round of applause. Well, I mean, in general, like you and Biden, I'm clapping for you and Biden because you're you're the you're the polit- you're the you're the politician on the pod, and there's a reason why we have you um, run through all the <laughs> political news. But what I would say in closing here is, net net, when you're in a a once in a lifetime or once in a century. Um, kind of like opportunity, you can do things that have never been done before. And so yeah. obviously having COVID and having racial equity and all these things being pushed all at one time is only going to happen like once every century. <laughs> and so Biden is really taking super advantage of this opportunity and he is a moderate. So he knows how to go across both sides of the aisle and him being so old, in my opinion, is playing is playing favorable for him. Cause it's like, man, like this is like my grandpa really pulling up for me at graduation or something or, or for an opportunity that I need. And I think that he is just the right person to be at the helm right now. And I'm super pumped about what's going on with the, with this bill, but also again, with the student loans and even things that come after, cause he's gonna still be pushing a lot of capital into folks' hands. Uh, so TBD on how that um, nets out, but I do think it is great to put capital to work on an infrastructure, but also put capital to work on um, standard of life for the majority of, of America. And Muhan, I'll pass it to you. One last comment that I forgot to make that I think you'll appreciate as the political operative on the pod. I think you are naive, not you personally, but just one is naive if, if you don't think that the government is never inefficient or wasteful with money. And I think even though the $2 trillion is going in a lot of the right directions. There are too many examples to cite right now, just in terms of where the government has not been efficient with spending dollars. So while I am supportive of almost all of the programs that are included, I might want to see the balance shift a little bit, you know, between <laughs> between certain categories, but, you know, leave that there for now. What are your thoughts on appointing a very entrepreneurial startup, technology-friendly budget czar to make sure 
that we are not wasteful with these dollars because to Brandon's point, if you can improve the efficiency, even 2% across yep. a bunch of these categories, you may free up $50 billion to wipe out student loan debt for a bunch of people. So we are talking about a massive impact for minor efficiency gains. And so I don't know. I don't know if you're busy next week, but maybe you should throw in your resume to be the budget czar for the Biden admin. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Mr. CLO. <laughs> Guys, I I have to say, you know, I left my 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 role at Yang 2020. Very proud of it. It is great to be running my own ship, you know, and that, I'm happy to talk about that on another uh, on another uh, on another pod. But being COO is fantastic. Being CEO just means that you have to do all the high level executive work. You guys know this. And so, you know, do I want to do that for the federal government? Not unless they're paying me an astronomical mm -hmm. amount of money. Right. No, no way. That actually, I will say um, a, a few things, Jonathan. I, I do think that those tied together a few uh, corners of my worldview right now is one, I love it. I think you're completely right. Hey, efficiency, 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 right? There was, there, th I have shortcomings as an executive for sure. And I'm fairly aware of them, among which is like reluctance to use resources. But among the things that I was very, very good at was I used what resources I had extremely well. Now that brings up the second. So, so if you have this idea where, okay, there are people who deploy resources really, really well, why are they not doing that for the government? And this, I do think is one of the core flaws from what I can see of the ethos of how Americans see public service, right? Public service, even the way that we say it is public service, as if you're not supposed to have a really profitable, lucrative, competitive career with the government, right? We we expect people to take lower incomes for higher stability because you work for the government. That model, I believe, needs to be radically changed, right? We need to have government positions, comptroller, budget office, like all these unsexy back office things that require excellence to do, those should be compensated at insane levels. Now, however, however we want to do it, that's one thing, but we need to be drawing the best talent for the most important enterprise, which is running the operating system of this country. So, you know, myself having responded to incentives, again, if you make it so, hey, I actually have an entrepreneurial team, or I myself can operate in a way and I'm compensated in a way that, hey, this is not at all playing second fiddle to say Facebook, right? I'm, I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking of Sheryl Sandberg, who was kind of in like the international political world and then she exited to tech, right? Government needs to be able to compete with tech and all the future big industries to keep the excellent talent. Uh, and so those two factors, to say one, I love that idea. Two, I think that really pulls out this thread of our government not being excellent at drawing talent, certainly not young talent. Uh, one more just anecdote story about that, having worked with the Democratic Party, especially the the less, the, the farther down you go from just the DNC, the, the national one, they just each become more and more shambles. Why? Because they're all being run by people who are working part-time, they don't have technology backgrounds, and oftentimes, as I've kind of critiqued about the political industry in general, very self-important people who are not actually good at getting things done, because it's all uncompensated work. We need mm -hmm. to figure out these market mechanisms, right? No, it's in, in, in their fairness. Why, right? That's not their full-time job. Um, and so, I think I think financial incentives, Muhan, are a really important part of it. But I think accessibility and visibility yes. is an equally important part of it. And something that the Obama era administration, I don't know if they started it, but it's where I became familiar with it, was thinking about public service tour of duties, where folks in Silicon Valley would actually take 
a year, two years, maybe four years and do almost like serving in the military or some other type of public service. This is your version. If you are a technologist, if you are uh, efficient at thinking about the macro picture of government spending, clean um, energy manufacturing, semiconductor manufacturing, if that is your area of expertise, your government needs you. And if you do not participate, if you stay on the sidelines and complain, then, uh, you know, macro perspective, you are part of the problem, not the solution. But the government needs to make it way easier for folks like that that are talented to jump into governmental roles and then jump back into the private sector. I would love to see way more private public collaboration as opposed to careerists that are just in public service government agencies uh, for their entire career. And Brandon, certainly from a diversity standpoint, I think the Biden administration has done a fantastic job with that. But it's not just about the cabinet level. It's about folks that are managing the day-to-day of these agencies, too. Yeah. And the last point I'll I'll bring into this, and then we'll do winners, losers content. JL, what you talked about these these tours of tech or even other bigger industries going into uh, public service for a little while and giving their their great skill sets to the, the greater good, I think folks should start doing that as well into cities. So I was talking mm-hmm. with one of my buddies this week where I was like, hey, like we should, Ohio actually just got, or I think Cleveland just got a, a lot of financial aid, if you will, from the government. And we should use some of this to lure back boomerangs, people who are from Cleveland, people who are from Ohio. And maybe you get a stipend for student loans. Maybe you get a stipend to be here for two years. Hey, you don't have to live here forever. We just want you to drink some of the Kool-Aid, bring some of your friends and family here and work your business here. That would have been hard last year to do or before COVID to just get people to go to new places, have them work remotely, et cetera, et cetera. But now this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity where everyone could potentially go back home to where they came from or go to a place that they spent time for uh, a long time, or it's a place that they've always wanted to go and get incentivized to go there and build that community, right? And using these type of places, it's a, a great standard of living. It's super affordable. Um, there's decent schools. There's happy people. And you're probably still close to middle of America to fly anywhere. Like Cleveland, you're two hours away from 60% of all, all U.S. states. So I think not only doing that for government, but doing that for local cities could really take America to the next level. And again, people who are high achieving who are focused on compensation, when you give them breaks for stuff, <laughs> they'll take it. <laughs> like, I, I we'll take an extra 20K towards X, Y, and Z. There's a reason why people want to live in Texas and want to live in Nevada and want to live in Florida, right? That 10% or whatever of no state state tax takes it a long way. So if we can start incentivizing people to work into the government or work into these tier two, tier three, tier four cities, America could be really interesting in the future. Like, I think there's a real good opportunity for what we could do um, to take this country to the future and to the next level. I love that. I think we should talk about that on a future pod. And I think for listeners listeners of the pod that don't know, I feel like there's a little subtle recruitment going on right now between <laughs> B, B. Brian and I. For those of you that don't know, I'm also from Ohio, but uh, not living there currently. So let, let's do it. I feel like we should have a pitch off about moving back to Cleveland. We'll have my yeah. girlfriend on and yeah. uh, we'll get the pros and cons. And Sino, <laughs> si- well, Sino, I mean, just like if there's two or three things, like what would make you move to a place like Cleveland, right? Because if there's a person like you who has raised tens of millions of dollars from VC, is a chairman of the board, st- investing in space, et cetera, et cetera. Like 
if we were to lure someone like you, like what would it take? And um, if that's on the table, like we can figure it out. And I think that's just at least conversations that folks should be having, like cities and talent should be having, or even like if you have ties to a city, people should be recruiting you. I don't see why we can't do it because there's no reason why anyone has to be in LA or, or New York or Montreal, wherever right now. Yep. No, I agree. I think this is super interesting. And it's going to feed maybe into our winners, losers content, but kind of a closing thought on this topic is with COVID and, and as we emerge and as, as more and more individuals get their vaccine, folks are relocating. They have already relocated and you can work from wherever more easily than before. And so people are going to choose where they work based on a quality of life. If, if you're lucky enough to be able to be part of that Zoom economy, I would say, uh, white collar mm -hmm. jobs where your location may be less dependent um, but there's a lot of folks where their job is dependent on a network, uh, whether whatever that community is. So I would say, broadly speaking, networks are shifting. Folks are becoming more um, mobile and remote oriented. So I think the definition of networks is going to expand from just bi-coastal or just New York and SF. But networks are still important. And I think it's an opportunity for tier two, three, four cities to redefine themselves as what do you want to be known for? What type of talent do you want to attract? Because networks at the end of the day are still very competitive. And I think at least for myself, I don't know about you guys. I used to be tired at the end of the day, having gone through meetings and, 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 and flying all over and, and interacting with people 24 seven. I cannot wait for in-person meetings again. I cannot wait to get back out there. I love the Zoom life, but I'm ready to go. So I think that in-person networking component is going to be a really critical part for cities in the future. Yep. You, I mean, you said it all, man, right there. I'm, I agree. Like shaking hands, kissing babies. We miss it. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll take the first, um, uh, opportunity to jump into winners, losers in content. I'll go through my three winners this week. Hey man, I think it's diverse founders. The next decade is going to be huge for diverse founders. And I hope by, 2030, we're seeing multiple amazing unicorns and, and exits and people reinvesting in their communities and really changing the face of what an entrepreneur looks like. And obviously Harlem Capital is going to potentially benefit from that. And I'm just excited for us trying to win and push the, push the community forward. Losers this week. I think we talked about it a little bit. I brought it up. Anyone who is going to be on the wrong side of the student loans battle, I hope that Biden has enough um, uh, fortitude to just move forward with it so that people who have all this debt can be the winners. But if he doesn't move forward with it, that whole community is going to be losers. So I just hope that we could be on the right side of history here. And then the content, yo, I've been watching The Mandalorian religiously on Disney plus never been into star Wars before. Uh, but I'm hooked. I love the, it like feels really game of thronesy and great storylines, ton of action and a sci-fi expect is just, it's just really on point. All right. All right. Uh, for winners and losers and content of the week for me, Muhan, uh, very, very modest, but obviously I think number one winner has to be Brandon Bryan of our podcast. Yes, diverse founders. Yes, Harlem Capital. But brother, like you're the bestie on the pod. And so uh, you appreciate you, that. This, this entire week is your victory lap as I, as I mangled that expression. Exactly. Go get him, brother. Go yes, get him. Yes, sir. 
Uh, exactly, yes! <laughs> uh, for those who can't see, uh, Brandon just did a victory lap around his room. Loser. Uh, this one was very flattering in that a friend said this to me and said, Muhan, you would die from this. But Emergent Biosolutions? Emergent Biosolutions, I'm sorry, but you definitely lose this week for ruining 15 million vaccines because you didn't train your hundreds of new employees to understand the difference between AstraZeneca and uh, Johnson & Johnson. Credit to Johnson & Johnson. I got to give them this. They found the problem, then called in the federal investigators to audit their own production and then wrote off the 15 mil. So to say whatever was in the water in Johnson Johnson that first time with that, uh, with that uh, I think it was some kind of uh, medicine, I think some kind of Tylenol accident is like still in the culture of Johnson & Johnson now where they called out their own 15 million of debunked vaccine. And that's just um, good toward the team. But so Emergent Biosolutions as a subcontractor, especially as you guys lobby for more federal contracts, uh, gotta, gotta, <laughs> gotta, exactly, gotta get your, your shit more into vote because, uh, into, into your house, into, you know what I mean? Get your stuff into line house before in you order. ask for more money. Thank you. House in order before you ask for more money. And finally, for content of the week, want to shout out Tiffany Liu. Uh, sorry, not uh, Tiffany Liu. She's a uh, founder and Tiffany Yao. She's a founder and CEO of Fulfill, uh, a nonprofit in Philadelphia. And she wrote a fantastic piece about why Asian Americans are grieving right now. It's a little bit more nuanced um, and dives into a little bit more of the history of the Asian American experience for many of us. So uh, shout out to her. And uh, we'll post the link after the show to her piece. So winners on my side, it's got to be the Suez Canal memes this week. I mean, it has been <laughs> so funny. The number of small tractors against the big Empire State Building sized cargo ship. Um, too many to count, but I really had a laugh or two this past week on the Suez Canal memes. Most importantly, glad things seem to be going in the right direction. And that ship has been unlodged. Losers this past week. Voting rights in the people of Georgia. Uh, there has been a major crackdown on uh, voting accessibility, voting rights. And um, just yesterday, the MLB announced that they're moving the All-Star game out of Atlanta. So it's too bad for folks around the country and in the state of Georgia that are uh, having their voting rights restricted. I disagree with it. And it's too bad that there is uh, economic damage to the city of Atlanta. That said, I'm proud of the MLB and its players for standing up for what's right and especially because MLB is viewed as America's game, very mainstream, as opposed to other sports leagues are maybe a little bit tilted towards one side of the political aisle. Uh, I think this is a big stand, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they took it, although disappointed why they had to take it. And lastly, content of the week. Normally, I've been your bestie on the pod that talks about Netflix, but this week I'm going on to <laughs> Spotify in the streaming world. I've got to give out a up-and-coming sneak preview of... A track before it gets viral before it goes viral and gets hot so it's called hallelujah it's by paul russell and kato on the track it is a r&b rap song and what i love about it is it is uh two guys collaborating that definitely don't have a lot of streams on spotify the track is fire though and the reason i noticed it is because he posted a TikTok of getting a DM from Drake saying, hey, if this song gets a lot of streams, I'll jump on and do the remix with you. So I want to hear the Drake remix of Hallelujah. So I'm giving a shout out to Hallelujah. Everyone go stream it on Spotify. It's an awesome track. And maybe maybe we'll even edit it in right here so that uh, listeners can hear 15 seconds of it before we wrap up. Dang. What a DM, huh? Exactly. Yeah. I'm trying to look for it right now. I'll put the link in. I'll put the link in at the end. Well, 
folks, this has been another episode of the First Money in Podcast. I'd say a very successful episode. We always seem to have great conversation, and I know this one, we veered off a little bit from our, our script and some of the topics, but um, what you get is the real honest conversation that we have, the three of us, if we were just talking uh, without these mics or without being in front of a podcast. So um, appreciate all the support and feedback we've gotten to date. As a reminder, feel free to subscribe to us on the Substack if you go to firstmoneyin.co.co or if you're already on Substack, if you search us with First Money In Podcast, uh, you will get a sneak preview on what we cover in upcoming pods. And as always, join us in two weeks where we continue our discussion about the world of startups, finance, politics, and the business world around us. And with that, from Spaceman, the operative, and Brandon Smooth Jazz Bryant. We'll see you next time. Hey, girl, how you doing? I'm some hallelujah. She gon' gas me up. She gon' call her Uber. I've been studying on the moon just to get the moon out. You ain't talking big things. I ain't talking to you. We been out in Hollywood to kayak, right? Yo, girl, send a brother presents in the past. Life, she just want to pull up for the night and get some pads. I've been missing nice guy, but I ain't that nice. I've been on point like... Talking big things, I ain't talking to you.